Welcome to the Cannabis Update podcast, where we give leaders and organizations an opportunity to tell their stories and share information. All right, before we begin, I've launched a YouTube page, and although it's in its infancy, I'll be producing a lot more video content of my interviews in 2020 and beyond. So if you like to watch as much as you like to listen, check it out and please subscribe. Today's interview is with Kirk Tusaw, who's a lawyer and one of Canada's leading cannabis rights activists. He's also an entrepreneur and has launched a new company called Great Gardener Farms with his business partner, which is a micro-cultivator operation on Vancouver Island. Kirk's now retired from law practice to focus on the business of growing world-class cannabis. Now, this is just a small part of his amazing story. Hopefully, I can have him on again to tell more of it in the future. I hope you enjoy Welcome to the podcast, Kirk. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure uh, for me, for sure. I've wanted to interview you for a long time. You're a bit of a legend, an OG, as they say. Um, Can you start off by maybe telling us, this is the toughest question I'm going to give you the whole interview, something about you that has nothing to do with cannabis? Uh, That's a neat question for me because I'll always sort of talk about my family there. I've I've got a wonderful wife, Debbie, that I've... uh, I've been with uh, since university at Michigan State University, and we've got uh, four incredible kids, uh, ages 9, 13, 15, and 19. Uh, and it's, you know, they're sort of the rock and the backbone of, of uh, my life and everything I do. Can you tell me, you've been at this for a long time. Uh, you're, you're very, very well known. You've been uh, very, very involved in the, the cannabis space and pushing towards legalization prior to. Um, what was it about cannabis that attracted you? Like, walk us through your life. How did you become a lawyer and care so much about cannabis? Well, let's go back to 1986 um, when my friends and I decided that uh, to enhance our skateboarding and uh, Dungeons and Dragons playing experiences, we would uh, score some weed and smoke that. Uh, And that's when I was about 15 years of age. And essentially, I knew instantly it's going to be part of my life forever. Uh, I've smoked it essentially every day since then, multiple times a day usually. Uh, It's been just sort of weaved through the fabric of everything I've done. Um, You know, the plant's been a friend to me. It it was, it took me through difficult times. It's taken me through happy times. Uh, It's been I don't know, my muse in some ways, I guess you'd say, if I was an artist. Um, So it's always for me been about cannabis and the cannabis plant, although I sort of came to the plant and growing uh, late, uh, uh, well, maybe not that much later <laughs> than age 15. Um, the law was maybe a little bit of a different path. Uh, you know, I took one of those sort of personality tests that they had in, in junior high school, uh, and it told me I should be a biochemist. Now, you know, I like biology and chemistry, uh, <laughs> particularly as it relates to drugs and drug use, um, but science was not sort of the path to follow. I always was sort of good at the politics, the social studies, the histories, the sort of classic uh, stuff like that. And I was I was pretty into sort of thinking and arguing with people. Well, you're not the stereotypical stoner. Like looking at your LinkedIn page, uh, you have three degrees, I believe, and you're working on your doctorate of law at UBC yeah. currently. Well... I didn't even know I had a LinkedIn page anymore. Um, Maybe time for a refresher. Uh, But I'm not currently at UBC. Um, I do have, you know, a few degrees. It turns out I was pretty good at school and um, at various points in my life when I wasn't really sure what to do next, school was kind of the default. Um, 
law, you know, I kind of fell into. I got uh, arrested a few times, um, you know, at age 16, 17, 18, 19 for marijuana possession and other lifestyle offenses. Uh, I grew up in a small town outside of Detroit, Michigan. And, you know, by 16, the police knew me fairly well. And by 18, they knew me really well. Um, and so, you know, you sort of got into scenarios as a result of that. Um, that, along with going to Hash Bash and hearing speakers the likes of Gatewood Galbraith and others talking about legalizing cannabis, uh, really inspired me to start talking about that. And I have bent the ear of anybody that would listen to me ever since. Uh, went to Michigan State University, mostly because I had buddies there, but they had a great program uh, that was then called Justice, Morality, and the Constitutional democracy, which is a pretty lofty sounding title. Uh, instead, uh, it's now called political philosophy and the constitutional democracy. But I studied, you know, the U.S. Constitution, the founding of the Constitution, read the Federalist Papers. Boy, those are in the news lately. Uh, <laughs> you know, read a bunch of political philosophy works and, and basically had a good time at university and uh, on dead tour. In the summers, spring, summer, fall, we'd hit a bunch of dead shows, hop on my VW van, sell veggie burritos, sell, you know, old Tatacasters and and, uh, and stouts in the parking lot, amongst other things, build balloons. Uh, and had a pretty good time that came to it, unfortunately, when Jerry died in 95. And that just sort of happened to coincide with uh, my then girlfriend, now wife, Debbie, had a year left at Michigan State. I had sort of been bumming around East Lansing, running a pizza joint. Uh, and they, the owners offered the opportunity to stay in that business and run multiple restaurants for them. Uh, and I was like, nah, that's not my path. Really? What should I do? And I said, what the hell? I'll go to law school. Um, didn't know that I was going to end up being a lawyer. I figured law school was something I would enjoy and, and you know, what, why not? So I spent three years away at university school law in downtown Detroit. Um, at the end of that, Deb and I got married and I uh, started practicing, you know, big firm, corporate and civil litigation. I had sort of halfway through my second year of law school was talking to someone. I was the kid that sort of sat outside the classroom smoking a joint before class was going to start and then went and sat in the front row and answered all the questions. And, you know, long-haired hippie dude that happened to be kind of good at the subject matter. <clears throat> I think a lot of it was the weed because I wasn't as stressed out as my classmates were, frankly. Um, but, uh, you know, practiced for about four years in the States, uh, had a pretty thriving civil and criminal practice going, was pretty uh, well established on the partnership track, smoking weed every day, all day, um, you know, doing my thing. I'd cut my hair off by then. Can't really get a job in a big firm in the mid 90s with, you know, long, long hippie hair, even if you have all and all that kind of stuff. Oh. Uh, you know, 9-11 happened. The U.S. fell into this sort of really nationalistic, uber-patriotic um, vibe that it just did not resonate with me uh, coming out of the sort of dead and the hippie uh, vibe. And so uh, because I'm a dual citizen, my parents are Canadian. We were like, what's next? And there, there's the back to school thing, right? It's like, oh, well, what do I do next? Ah, let me go back to school. So I got a master. We, we, we applied to UBC and McGill. My family's from Montreal and got into both. And my wife and I had always wanted to live on the West Coast. We'd never been to Vancouver, never been to the West Coast of Canada and thought, oh, hell, let's let's 
go to UBC and let's move to Vancouver. So we did that sight unseen. I wrote my master's in law thesis on cannabis prohibition, the Clay Kane and Malma Levine case had just been decided by the Supreme Court of Canada. The Senate had just put out its awesome, still probably the best report on cannabis to this day. <clears throat> the special committee led by uh, the late uh, and great Pierre-Claude Nolan, uh, when and they recommended legalization and they did it in a way that uh, you know, really fit certain academic themes I was pursuing, individual liberty, freedom, uh, alteration of consciousness to as part of sort of knowing yourself and knowing the world around you. And so I, I had the privilege of writing about that and getting master's in law and um, still didn't know if I was going to practice law. Went to work for the Civil Liberties Association, uh, BC Civil Liberties Association as their policy director and uh, had the opportunity to continue to sort of further my passion, which was cannabis uh, and cannabis legalization. And so I tried to push that organization into drug policy reform uh, and, and it worked. We I convinced them to uh, put on a conference at the Wask Center in 2004 that we called Beyond Prohibition. Uh, I lined up a hell of an impressive range of speakers because of the backing of the BCCLA and its reputation. Uh, and then I just needed to find the money. And so I went to Canada's Culture. And I knew that there was this guy, Mark Emery. Uh, hadn't met him except at, one, at the first 420 I went to with my daughter when she was two or so uh, in 2002. I think it was maybe three you know, Mark was wandering around handing away marijuana and he gave me a bag of weed and said, hey, anybody brings their kid to this event, that's when you could still, by the way, walk around the grounds of the art gallery. Uh, you know, there was a thousand or two thousand people there. It was all very small and, and, and peaceful. Uh, still peaceful, but it's a little more uh, crowded. And so I was like, OK, let me go ask this guy for money. So I walked in and asked him for $15,000. Uh, told him who I was, what I was planning to do, who the speakers I had lined up were. And, you know, it was a 15 minute conversation. And he said, sounds great. I'll give you the $15,000. Go talk to the woman with the blonde hair in the back of the in the back of the store. That's when I met Michelle Rainey. Uh, had to have a longer conversation with Michelle in order to secure the funds, because when I told her that Mark just sent me over for $15,000, she just started laughing and said, Mark gives away the money, but I control who gets it. Uh, and so I, you know, I established my bona fides with her and, and you know, we, we ended up hitting it off and, and had a friendship that lasted until she passed away, unfortunately, uh, far too young. But we put the event on. Larry Campbell came. He was the mayor of Vancouver. No preconditions. He was the, he sort of did the closing speech. And he, for the first time ever, said, let's legalize marijuana and tax the hell out of it. First time any big city mayor had ever done that. Uh, and... It made front page news. It was fantastic. And it was a great event. And that sort of began my association with Canvas Culture Magazine. Uh, met John Conroy through that as well. And that that sort of propelled me to, well, well you know what, maybe I should practice law uh, and actually, you know, do some cannabis related work. Because John, of course, was sort of the cannabis lawyer in Canada. There you know, maybe a couple of others that out east that sort of were doing some things, Paul Lewin, Alan Young. Uh, but I knew I knew this guy, John Conroy, he was a legend. Uh, and, you know, when I got to know him, I also got to realize he's just a, an amazing human being, too. Tell me, I guess that began your relationship with uh, the Emery's Mark and um, cannabis culture. Um, you've worked with a variety of people who have um, 
being activists in the scene in Canada for for many years now. Um, one person that I spoke to a few years back in an interview was Ted Smith out of Victoria. Um, can you tell me about working with the Victoria Cannabis Buyers Club? How did that relationship start? What kind of work yeah. did you do for them, and, and how did that all come together? Well, I mean, I... What happened was I was living in Vancouver and one of my first cases that, that John brought me into was for Philippe Lucas and the Vancouver Island Compassion Society. Their grower, uh, Matt Barron, had been busted growing a thousand cannabis plants for the 400 members of the society. And we did a constitutional challenge and, and most of that challenge took place in Victoria. So John and I were coming over to Victoria, spending a week at a time here, getting to know the sort of local scene. And Ted came to every single day of that case. In fact, I think he was at almost more days of it than Matt was. And Matt was the accused person, uh, but he excused because he was still growing for the VIX. So he had to go and, you know, tend to the plants while we were doing this constitutional challenge. So I got to know Ted and he invited me to do uh, you know, some of his awesome events that he'd been putting on uh, here in Victoria. And, you know, we developed a, a friendship uh, and a mutual respect. So we were successful in Matt's challenge. We got the MMAR declared invalid. Uh, and um, that was around 2008, 2009. So when Owen gets busted, uh, not that long after that, um, Ted came to me and we had a conversation. He was thinking about hiring counsel. And by then I had, uh, I had moved to the island, so I was local and there was going to be less expense. And I, you know, I offered him, I offered to do the, I said, listen, I think this case has legs, Ted. I, you know, this edibles challenge to me uh, resonates really well constitutionally. It fits right in with what the court said in Parker. There is, you know, an, an absolute prohibition on edibles. It's, it's arbitrary. It's not sustainable. These are hard challenges to win. Let's, let's not kid ourselves. I mean, a lot of people out there are like, well, it's so clearly unconstitutional. Yeah. I mean, to you and I, to a judge, eh, you know, the law is a little, it's an uphill battle. You have the burden of persuasion. You have the burden of proof as, as a charter litigant. You've got to convince them that this enactment of a duly elected parliament is so outrageous that the judge should step in and declare that it's invalid. That's a big ask. You know, that's a little different than saying guilty or innocent or liable or not liable. That's a big ask. Uh, and But I said, you know, I think it's got legs. We're going to need to hire experts. We're going to need to put compelling patient stories on the witness stand. It's going to be a battle and a slog, but I think it could go all the way to Supreme Court of Canada. If you're going to do it, you know, you have to be willing to take it that whole distance because at any point, if you give up, you know, the other side's not giving up. They have unlimited resources. Um, and Ted said, yeah, you know what, let's, let's figure out how we can do this. You know, I'm committed to it. The club's committed to it. Uh, Owen's committed to it, which takes a hell of a lot of courage, uh, as well. Uh, patient witnesses were committed to testifying, which also takes a hell of a lot of courage. Um, you know, my job is pretty easy. I'm a storyteller and, you know, I try to persuade people and I'm speaking truth and I'm speaking from both shared lived experiences as a patient and, and consumer myself, but also from a, you know, a fairly decent body of legal and, and sort of knowledge about the plan. But that's, that's, that's so different than getting up and telling a story about your critical or chronic illness, your pain, your suffering, how it's affected you and your family. And I mean, that, those, those are difficult, difficult things, but we had the people willing, the team willing to do it. So I, I said, you know, Ted, I'll do this case. Um, 
you know, okay, so the challenge of Supreme Court Canada is typically fairly costly in terms of legal fees, you know, it could, could run into the hundreds of thousands of dollars and the millions of dollars, depending on the case and the charges you're, you're charging. I said, you know, I'll do it for 1500 bucks a month. Start to- wow. However long it takes us, however long it, if it takes us four years, you know, you'll pay me the equivalent of whatever, 100 grand, 120 grand. That's a ton of, ton of money. Let's not pretend it's not. It's an awful lot of money. You know, it represents probably 80 or 90% discount on what you'd, you'd pay to do that kind of litigation otherwise. But they needed the money, A, to keep operating and servicing their members. They weren't in it for money. This was, you know, these are these are honorable and noble people. Uh, and they needed to hire the experts because you have to pay for their travel and hotel and all of those kinds of things. So um, we said, hey, let's do it. And and uh, off, off we were. Uh, and fortunately, it ended up pretty much as good as you possibly can go with a unanimous, uh, you know, per curiam uh, decision in the Supreme Court of Canada, 100% in our favor. So it, it was it was a privilege to be part of that experience with with Ted and Gail and all the great people at the uh, at the club. That's amazing. Um, Ted told me his version of the story, obviously, parallels. Uh, it's really neat to hear your side. <laughs> I'd be disappointed if it didn't. <laughs> yeah, true. So much of the work that you do is for compassion clubs and activists and that sort of thing. One, uh, as a lawyer who has really identified cannabis as your primary passion and, and driver, um, do you find that when you go into court to represent people that uh, you have uh, opposition or judges that might actually stigmatize you, automatically put you into a category? And uh, two, why does uh, representing people like that uh, matter to you? Sure. I mean, in terms of the stigma, um, yeah, I mean, absolutely. You, you get to be known as sort of the pot lawyer. And, you know, a lot of times that plays well. Uh, frankly, there's a lot of support, particularly staff uh, and justice of the peace and, and, and folks like that. You know, judges see the operation of the drug war. And most of them understand that it's not a particularly useful uh, social policy in an intellectual way. Uh, they have a role to play in our system and they have to play it ethically and honorably. Uh, and it's not to write laws and substitute their personal opinions for what the, what the law teaches, but most of them get it. Uh, but there is definitely that stigma uh, that attaches. And it's the reason that I, you know, I, I cleaned up well. I, your reputation is sort of 80 percent of what you have as a lawyer because it, you, you can lose it quickly. And if you, you know, I didn't want to look the part of the pot lawyer. Right. And so I. Uh, you know, uh, I'm also careful often in what I say and do publicly. We would rarely have seen me smoking cannabis in an interview prior to retiring. I, I've got one piece of videotape out there of me smoking cannabis on YouTube, and I was drummed out of the 2005 um, uh, federal election as a result of that one little piece of videotape. So that that, that experience really taught me and I got grieved to the law society as well. Fortunately, the law society said, no, this isn't, a, we're not going <laughs> to, we're not going to censure you for this little bit of videotape that you made while you were the campaign manager for the BC marijuana party and not a lawyer. Uh, but it, it's there, it's present. Um, why I, why I worked with so many compassion clubs uh, and supported them is because they're incredible people doing incredible positive things in the community and for and for patients. I mean, I'm a medical cannabis consumer. I've had, you know, chronic pain since I was 30 and a variety of other, um, you know, pro-inflammatory conditions. So I understand on a, you know, on a daily level, the sort of um, struggles and minor, very minor compared to others. 
that some people go through, both accessing medical cannabis, uh, certainly before I came to Vancouver, that was an issue, uh, and, and, you know, being stigmatized by it and having a supportive environment where you can even talk about these, these things. Uh, I mean, I remember in university, I had a roommate that I used to, you know, I preached the legalization gospel. We were all living in a house together as a guitarist in a band. And he, uh, every time I said cannabis is going to be legal someday, he said, you know, Kirk, the world needs dreamers too. Uh, and, you know, they sold the first legal cannabis this year in, uh, in Michigan, uh, where I went to University of Michigan State. So, Mike, that one's for you, buddy. Uh, keep dreaming. Uh, but, you know, these folks at the clubs, they, they are... They're heroes, um, you know, especially the people that were doing it before it became relatively easy to do it, right? I mean, the history of the Compassion Club movement in Canada is a few brave souls, Ted, uh, Neve, Hillary, Amy, Phil uh, Lucas, these folks that uh, Dana, Dory, those good people, these folks that sort of real that set the bar so high the standards so high um, with compassion and with access and with why they were doing it openly and transparently um, at a time when it was very difficult to do so. You know, the, the, the heyday of the sort of dispensary boom uh, around 2012 to legalization, you know, if people came into the sort of cannabis scene right around then, um, they don't, a lot of them don't necessarily understand that the feeling was very different. Like uh, everybody felt like they could get arrested at any moment. There was no sure wins in court. You didn't have a body of precedent that you could start a point at that said, Hey, A, the laws are unconstitutional or B, e, these people should not be punished harshly or at all. Um, you know, you didn't have any of that. That hadn't been established yet. It got established by them. Uh, and so they were inspiring to me. Um, you know, the BCCCS was one of the first, maybe the first legal uh, thing I ever did. And it, would, it ended up being, I mean, it wasn't even criminal. It was actually a, a <laughs> it was a takeover attempt by some members of the board because they didn't like the way the club was. And then we, sort of, we were, you know, Riel and I were at my place in Vancouver at like two in the morning signing affidavits, ready to go to court to, to block this takeover the next day and we ended up sitting down with the disaffected members and, and you know working it out we had a nice conversation and i said hey why not start your own club and the the, the vibe was such this was 2005 the vibe was such that that hadn't even occurred to them as a viable possibility in vancouver that they were like what are you talking about if we start our own club we're going to get arrested that city will never allow us to do that and I said, well, you're not going to know until you try. And by the way, I think you're wrong. Uh, I think if you do it the way you're talking about, and it's, you know, patient first, compassion first, doctors, all, you know, all of that, I think they'll actually leave you alone. Uh, and, you know, they went ahead and, and did that. They opened up the Green Cross and, and uh, um, they did get largely left alone for, for quite a period of time. So, you know, these people are heroes, all of them. Yeah, uh, And I think we got to recognize that. You know what, man? As a person who's smoked weed for 25 years or so, I would watch people like that, yourself included, uh, for years and go, wow, those guys are nuts, man. You know, meanwhile, I'm quietly smoking my weed and not really getting active or involved. And, um, you know, I, I took the easy way out for sure. I let the other people do the hard work, yourself included. Um, but now I've decided. <laughs> It's time to stop. It's time to stop hiding anything. You can't anymore. There's nothing wrong with it. You know, 
The hard work's being That's done right. to a large extent. And now the rest of us, right. 99% of us are going, okay, now we'll admit to the world that we smoke weed. Yep. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I, I've been out of the cannabis closet for an awfully long time. Uh, I felt like that was important to, to do. At the same time, I had the privilege of being, you know, a highly educated white man that practiced as a criminal defense lawyer uh, and, you know, had family and other resources to fall back on if my honesty it even caused me any negative repercussions. And the reality is most people aren't that privileged. So, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with going about day and not looking for ripples in your pond, uh, you know, and just being a cannabis consumer. I do think, however, that it's important as a social movement, as a, you know, not necessarily even a legal movement, as a social and cultural movement towards acceptance, that one of the most powerful tools is when the people around you that know you as or for instance, knew me, know, know me as Kirk, the guy that coaches my kid's soccer team. And then I'm talking to him on the sidelines about cannabis legalization because cannabis, you know, comes up as a topic. And then all of a sudden, you know, you're, you, you, you sort of out yourself as both a consumer and an advocate. And they've already gotten to know you in a different context and had a favorable opinion of you. That shatters a lot of stereotypes. It, it really does. And it's the reason I encourage people, for example, um, to join political party writing associations. But you don't go in there as cannabis crusader or drug policy reform crusader. You go in there as a person who cares about the political process and, and having good leadership in this country. You establish your bona fides and you let the other piece of it come out just normally, you know, you don't sort of put it on your chest. Uh, because I think that those sort of moments of realization are almost more powerful than, you know, coming in with guns blazing. It's, um, you know, it, it can be very effective. Um, question about the legal space. How involved are you? I know that at one point you were retained by Canopy to do some work. Uh, how involved are you with the legal big business side of it? And do you care much about it? Uh, well, uh, I was never retained by Canopy. That's a term that's, you know, oh. refers to lawyers. Being so I retired from the practice of law. I've been consulting with Canopy and continue to consult with Canopy in the capacity more, you know, I think I sort of see my role as the advocate for cannabis and cannabis people uh, in some ways, as well as somebody who has a little bit of technical expertise uh, in how uh, retail and dispensary operations grew, developed and, and proliferated throughout British Columbia and Canada. Uh, you know, at the time of my retirement, I represented more than 100 uh, dispensaries across the country. Um, you know, I knew the industry, know a lot of people in the industry, and I've been growing cannabis medically, uh, you know, better part of 10 years or so, um, and had some forays before that. And so I, I by no means know anywhere near what my partner, Matt, for example, knows, but uh um, you know, I, I sometimes have good ideas. Um, so I continue to do that. And that's been a great relationship. Um, you know, I know a lot of the, the people there. Um, I think it's the company that employs the most people, sort of the dispensary compassion background. I'm talking about true pioneers like Hillary, like Rade, uh, the president of the company, uh, like Adam Greenblatt. You know, these folks were in it very, very early on doing incredible work. Hillary, you know, more than any of them. Uh, or at least longer than any of them. So, so great people, and that's been good. But Matt and I, uh, Matt Barron, who 
was the grower for the VIX and we became, you know, very, very good friends uh, through the course of that trial because I'm at, because we like to basically go back to the office at the end of the trial and smoke joints and digest the day. And, you know, it, it always sort of came to be that Matt and I were the last two still puffing, <laughs> you know, when everybody else is tapped out. So we, uh, we, we sort of bonded over our shared love of cannabis, taught me how to grow. And, and we've recently launched um, a business called Great Gardener Farms. We launched it actually at Lyft Vancouver. Um, he uh, been the the owner along with uh, Sarah Gardner of House of the Great Gardener, uh, which is an international seed company, uh, won more than 50 international awards. And, you know, when the opportunity came to retire from law and, and you know, basically go into business with uh, with my best friend and and, uh, and grow cannabis and, um, you know, be involved in the plant side of things, the cannabis side of things more than, than sort of fighting in the courts, uh, you know, I jumped at it. And so we uh, we've launched Great Gardener Farms. We are excited about what we've been doing. We brought our genetics legally into the system with, with the help of Canopy, our distribution partner. Uh, and we phenotyped our own genetics. We selected the best ones. We are growing uh, sun-grown cannabis uh, in British Columbia in a greenhouse. And uh, we're looking forward to having it on the shelves in British Columbia very soon. So uh, it, it's been enlightening uh you know i've learned i've learned a ton about things that i you know didn't know anything about uh intellectual property marketing sales branding business development filling out lots of paperwork uh you know criminal law is mostly light on the paper so uh other than you know filing legal argument um it's uh it's been fun and it's been exciting and it's been, you know, we've been working on this for the last, you know, year and a half or so. Uh, so it's been something that we're, we're super happy to begin to finally share with people and talk about. Well, I was going to wrap it up with a question about your future, but I think we just got the answer. Um, why don't I finish up with a slightly different question? I would be remiss if I didn't ask you because um, you uh, post a lot about U.S. politics and uh, you were from yeah. Michigan. Tell me, yes. what's your perspective on federal legalization in the U.S.? I know you're shaking your head. I ask every American this question and it's impossible to answer, but and, and any thoughts on that? I, I, I mean, first, uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't say, uh, you know, the United States is currently, I think with no uh, exaggeration, at a critical moment in its history. Um, I, it, it, there's a decent chance that, you know, the idea of America, the imperfect idea of America that, that Adam Schiff talked about in the impeachment trial of Donald Trump, um, this idea where the rule of law matters, where democracy matters, where the truth matters, um, never realized, always striven towards uh, in, in its sort of best moments when it, when it has them. Um, I think we're on the brink of losing that forever. Uh, and and it's, a re it's a direct result of the most corrupt administration that's ever been elected to office uh, and, you know, the complicity of um, the Republican Party. And I think it's, uh, it's a terrible tragedy, not just for the United States, but for the world and for the very idea of democracy, because democracy is a very young concept historically in our, in our world. We take it for granted, but it's by no means... Uh, the assured end of the human civilization. So uh, not to put too large a point on it, um, what's going on right now is absolutely terrifying. Um, in terms of federal legalization, I'm way more optimistic. <laughs> you know, 
you know, uh, there are some 14 states that have legalized uh, through citizen action, actually through direct democracy, something we unfortunately don't have the opportunity to do here in Canada at the federal level or realistically at most provincial and territorial levels. Um, you have uh, most of the population of the U.S. at least lives in a medical cannabis jurisdiction. Um, much of the population in the U.S. is able to drive a short distance and buy cannabis legally in stores. Uh, there is a growing consensus amongst leadership that cannabis uh, prohibition is a bad idea. Uh, hemp has, I mean, one of the few good things that this current administration has done is, is to basically legalize hemp uh, across the United States. Uh, that's a major positive. Uh, so, you know, the public's been way ahead of politicians on this issue on both sides of the border. Uh, but the politicians are starting to catch up. And I'm, I'm certainly much more optimistic about federal legalization in the U.S. now than I was um, five years ago. And frankly, Canada legalizing cannabis and putting into place a system that is uh, overly burdensome, uh, needs reform, but has resulted in, you know, a, a legal system across the country that, you know, is starting to work. Um, and frankly, the conservative nature of it is going to assuage the fears of many people who are iffy on it. So, I think that's been a huge boon to efforts in the U.S. to legalize uh, federally. I wouldn't be shocked to see it in the next five years. Uh, and I, you know, honestly, um, like I said to my old roommate, Mike, uh, <laughs> the world does need dreamers, too. But I, I was pessimistic on, on the United States for an awfully long time. So I'm, uh, I'm really, really optimistic. Uh, I think we're almost at the point where the U.S.'s sort of over-slavish adherence to capitalism and free marketeerism uh, may, may have generated a critical mass that can't be denied. There's just too much money to be made. And the people that currently pull the strings of power in the United States um, want to make that money. I mean, that, that's, that's, I think, as, as big a driving force uh, as anything else, which is you know, a sad reflection on society. Uh, but it is also not unique to cannabis, that's for sure. Um, how does somebody follow you online? Where are you these days? Where do you exist? Is Twitter probably the best place to get you? I'm most active on Twitter. I mean, I think it's a platform that, that lends itself best to the way I use social media. Um, Facebook, I think I'm, I'm rarely on. Uh, it, it just turned, it just has devolved and, and frankly, I don't like their business practices. Uh, Instagram was starting to get more active. Now I can post a bit more of my growing side. I'm, I'm basically Kirk Tusa across all platforms. Um, LinkedIn, apparently I need to get in and update a little bit. Uh, <laughs> Um, but uh, the other place you can sort of find out what we're doing uh, as a company is uh, Instagram, Great Gardener Farms, or the website, greatgardenerfarms.com. Uh, and my, my uh, business partner and friend, Matt Barron, is Great Gardener on Instagram. Um, that's probably where you can find uh, a lot of fun stuff uh, as well. Thank you for doing this, man. Um, you know, as much as I love video and it, people love to watch video, I hate Skype because while you're talking, I can't say anything because it cuts you off all the time. So I'm sitting here silently forcing you to just go on and on. But <laughs> I, I appreciate it, man. I appreciate taking the time. Uh, sorry about the barking dog a little earlier. Um, <laughs> but uh, all is well. And uh, I look forward to following you from here forward and seeing what you guys uh, grow and seeing it on the market in BC and hopefully Alberta. So thank you, man. Uh, 
Well, we're hopeful too. <laughs> uh, we'd like to be uh, we'd like to be coast to coast to coast because you know we're proud of what we're doing and we we grow with intention and we um, we love the plant. We love the product. Uh, we're consumers ourselves. We're breeders. We're growers. Um, you know, I'm, I I sort of vowed never to put a suit on again if I can avoid it. So um, <laughs> you know. Uh, we're, we're trying to have a good time. Uh, thanks for the opportunity to be on. I, I really appreciate it. And uh, hit me back anytime. Thank you, sir. Thanks once again to Kirk for joining me to talk about his life and his future. He's obviously a brilliant guy and was so authentic. So that was quite refreshing, to say the least. If you want to follow him online, look for Kirk Tusaw, T-O-U-S-A-W. And of course, check out Great Gardener Farms as well. And hey, if you have a story about the cannabis space that you'd like to tell, reach out to me on Twitter at CanUpdatePod. That's at C-A-N-N Update P-O-D. And if you have a business and would like to reach all of my loyal listeners, send me an email and we can discuss different ways that I can help you gain exposure to. Just email Michael at DistinctMedia.ca. My next interview is just around the corner. If you have any thoughts or feedback on the videos, I'd love to hear it. Send me a DM. Thanks so much. All right, hit it, Amber. Thanks for listening to the Cannabis Update Podcast. We do our very best to be as accurate as possible, but take no responsibility for inaccurate details or facts. If something interests you, we're glad to have brought it to your attention, but please take the time to research the details for yourself.